it's a bit muted. That's okay. Can you hear us okay? Yeah, I have to concentrate. You'll have to shout a bit. Okay, I'll, I'll lean in a bit more. Mm-hmm. Maybe Christian can, uh, unlo- as his Twitter um, opponents would suggest, needs to really pay attention to what other people are saying <laughs> for once. <laughs> Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash and I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-hosts and our head of programs, John McDonald and Dr. Christian Niemitz, the head of political economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs. In this week's episode, we're going to be discussing Cuba, Australia's healthcare system, and whether young people really are socialist. Last week, Cuba's communist government took the unprecedented step of legalizing small and medium-sized private businesses. This follows the emergence of some rare anti-government protests in the island Soviet in the last month. Christian, just going back to some of the work that you've done on socialism, I'm kind of interested in how you categorize Cuba as, uh, you know, I called a Soviet a second ago, but do, should we think about it the same way we think about North Korea? Should we think about it the same way we, we kind of thought about Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union? Is it a different form of socialism like the left often likes to claim in the West that is far more highly functioning? Yes, the Cuban regime or the Cuban system was initially meant to be a completely different form of socialism. And that explained some of the initial popularity. Uh, So first of all, it was a homegrown revolution. Unlike what happened in most of Eastern Europe, it was not an exportation of the Soviet model. Cuba was, of course, uh, never occupied uh, by by the the Soviet Union. It uh, became an ally of the Soviet Union later and after the revolution. Uh, But even though, even in even though they saw the Soviet Union as an ally, there was initially an ambition to build a completely different kind of socialism. They did not embrace the Soviet Union's internal economic policies, especially in the time in the beginning when Che Guevara himself was Minister of Industry. Uh, They had this idea, they said that the Soviet Union was excessively bureaucratic and top-down. They said it was a system which didn't really involve the workers themselves and therefore what they rejected was the use of, of work norms, which were the norm in the Soviet Union, uh, that, that you had production targets that you had to fulfill, and you also had material incentives uh, um, to uh, fulfill those targets. And in Cuba, they wanted to organize their socialist economy without all that, uh, relying on idealism, on voluntary participation, that people would just identify so much with this project that uh, mm. you, you wouldn't need any bureaucratic work norms, uh, that uh, they would just, uh, out of their own efforts, want to participate. Didn't work that way. In the end, they ended up being more or less like the Soviet Union. But what I'm saying is it wasn't the plan right from the start. So that kind of, I guess, helps explain some of the appeal of Cuba when it, when it comes to, uh, I suppose, every university campus in the world, somebody wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt. I, I think it then becomes kind of a pretty fascinating uh, case study in the sense that there is something inherent about the social system that turns authoritarian. Even if that's never the original intent, the only way to maintain the level of control in society in which you don't have the voluntary exchange of, of goods and services is to force people not to vo- undertake voluntary exchange. So you have to be 
I'm authoritarian. Then the only way to maintain that social system over time is to crack down against any form of protest. Yes, that's exactly right. And uh, it isn't an accident that socialism turns out that way. That is uh, one of my issues with the the socialist critics of, of Cuba. They exist as well. It's not that every Western socialist is a massive fan of Cuba. There was, for example, an article by Owen Jones just after Fidel Castro had died in which uh, Jones said that Cuba isn't socialist. He said he didn't recognize it as socialist. Ah, yes, not real socialism this time. We'll, we'll get it right next time. <laughs> Very much that. Although, yeah, with, with one minor tweak, he did say Cuba could still become real socialism. So he didn't um... uh, write it off yet completely. He said it isn't real socialism at the moment because real socialism means the working class is in charge. The working class owns and controls the means of production and uh, does so democratically. He says that's clearly not what Cuba is right now. But he presented it as some minor add-on, something that you can just reintroduce later, something that I just somehow forgot to introduce the first time and could still do with a bit of, of time delay. But that is my uh, my whole issue with this uh, whole argument of not real socialism. They, they can never explain how you would do that in practice. How would you involve everyone in decision making when, when you don't have market prices? My classic question them is, is exactly that. You know, when, when you're done murdering the glasses wearing bourgeoisie like myself, uh, how are you going to decide, you know, what the rubber is used for? Is it going to use for cars? Is it going to be used uh, for machines? Is it going to be used for the road? Uh, how are you going to make these arcade decisions and how are you going to do it in such a way that's not inherently authoritarian and top-down? Okay, so if Cuba has all the uh, hallmarks of a Soviet failed state, could this be its 1989 moment? Ideally, I very much hope so. But um, I I don't know, to be honest. It's, it's extremely hard to gauge the political mood in a foreign country, especially if it is a, a country that is so cut off from the world. If, if this were anywhere else, you could have a look at uh, what, what people are saying on social media. And, and, but in the case of Cuba, that's not really a thing yet. There isn't uh, so, such, there's, there's no such thing as Cuban Twitter so far. I mean, yeah, I've, I've stumbled across the odd uh, Twitter user, but uh, internet use only really took off very recently there. They are two decades behind us in terms of internet usage. So. I have no idea. It's it's hard to say how how widespread level of discontent is or how well organized the the opposition is. I very much hope that that it, that this is the 1989 moment. It is long overdue. Um, it it is a bit of a, a historic freak accident that this regime survived for so long, especially after the collapse of their main ally, the, the Soviet Union. Maybe the internet itself is going to be a game changer. Maybe that makes it easier uh, for the opposition to coordinate because uh, even though they don't have the, the conventional means, of course, uh, there, there is no opposition party and the, the more conventional means would, would be uh, severely repressed. But if they can use the internet in their favor, who knows, maybe that's going to be the game changer because so far if you were if you were pro-regime, if you were a member of the, the ruling party, then you wouldn't need the internet. You would have access to all the uh, the offline communication channels. If, if you were against the regime, of course, you wouldn't have that. And uh, maybe they can do that now with internet usage increasing. So, so Christian, what do you think uh, is really driving the protests we've seen in Cuba? Obviously, they've calmed down a bit in, in the recent 
uh, weeks. But it did seem like there was really a moment going on there driven by a fundamental failure of the regime. Yes, the more immediate cause was the, the shortages of, of, of basic essential food and medicine, basically. That's uh, what, what caused that. that uh, Cuba relies quite heavily on tourism. That's what brings foreign currency. And of course, now with COVID, uh, there's not much tourism going on anywhere. Uh, that, that's, of course, for a problem for any tourism-dependent economy. That's also a problem for the coastal parts of Spain. But uh, they can live with that, whereas, uh, yeah, turns out that, that Cuba can't. Of course, the, the conventional explanation that you, you see on, on the left uh, is that it's all because of the U.S. Uh, embargo. And uh, that there has been, there's, for example, there is a, a lecturer at, I think, the University of Glasgow, Helen Jaffe, who makes this case over and over again, and uh, first in Novara Media, and then in The Guardian, and then on the LSE blog, and they all seem to be rolling out the red carpet for her, uh, blaming this ex almost, yeah, you could say exclusively on, on the embargo. That is, of course, the part that, uh, that I don't buy, because even though I'm against the embargo, that just cannot logically be the reason. Cuba could, in principle, trade with uh, with any other economy in, in the world, uh, including with some of the nearby ones. They, they could uh, trade with Mexico. There's absolutely no legal restrictions against that. But Cuba is just generally an economy that just doesn't trade very much. Uh, they um, The share of... Uh, Exports and imports as a percentage of, of GDP is less than 30% there. And uh, in Britain, it's more than 60%. You would expect a small economy like, like Cuba to have a, a much higher percentage. And they just don't trade very much with anyone. And the problem is on, on their side, it's most, it's the, the regime itself is isolationist. So you could lift the embargo. And yes, trade would then, of course, increase with the US. And uh, that would probably make some, some noticeable difference, but that is not the reason why Cuba is poor. And in, in any case, food and medicine are exempt from the embargo uh, anyway. So uh, the US is already the main importer for, from a Cuban perspective, uh, the main source of food imports, and uh, I think for, for various medical products as well. So it, that cannot be the reason uh, the embargo cannot be the reason for food and medicine shortages if food and medicine are specifically exempt from that embargo. Yeah, I suppose it's that, that classic kind of question we ask ourselves. Um, if the embargo was effective, would it be morally justifiable um, on the Cuban people? Uh, let's say effective in the sense that it, it was a result of the embargo that, that fermented the revolution. Now, I think the general evidence here um, and the IA has done some work on this in the past, is that embargoes and trade sanctions in a broad sense don't actually tend to lead to regime change. And it, of course, hurts the people a lot. And that's, I think it's quite morally questionable as an approach if it's not achieving much else. I think kind of Magnitsky-style sanctions have at least far more targeted style sanctions where you actually name an individual and then you restrict their access to, let's say, um, US bank accounts or um, being able to travel around freely, as has been done against some uh, Russian targets, some Chinese targets as well. It seems like a, a far better approach, though I doubt putting down Magnitsky's sanctions against Cuba would have much effect because I don't think the Cuban leadership would have many assets in, in the West that are being uh, impacted. Um, what I'm kind of interested, though, in 
in terms of where where Cuba goes to next. So are we, and maybe John, kind of your thoughts on this as well, are you like particularly optimistic that reform is on the way in Cuba or is it kind of stuck where it is? Um, it seems like, you know, famously the Soviologists uh, had no prediction of what would happen in 1989. It just seemed from, from outside, it just seemed very sudden and, and very shocking. Whilst clearly there were decades of fomenting anger against the Soviet system and its failure to deliver materially for, for the for the people of the Soviet Union. So are you optimistic, you know, we're going to wake up tomorrow and perhaps find out the news that the, the entire system has collapsed? Or is, is this system a bit more stable than that just because it's been around for so much longer? I, I don't have a, a particular answer to that. I mean, optimistically speaking, it would be fantastic uh, if it trended towards a, uh, a liberal capitalist democracy uh, and it could sort of transform itself into a uh, into a sort of a Singapore of the South Americas. But uh, Christian, I suppose you probably have much more detailed thoughts on that than I do. Not necessarily, because that's that's the problem. This is a, an, an issue where um, it's it's been so long that they had a market economy. It's not that there's anything they could readily fall back on. So therefore, what a post-socialist transition would look like, it could go either way. Um, there are of course, the, the successful cases there are, let's say, the Baltic states or uh, post-socialist Czechoslovakia, where they quite quickly adopted Western-style institutions, including functioning uh, institutions of, of the rule of law and uh, a court system and protecting property rights, getting the basics right. These were the places that turned themselves around quite quickly. They, there was and a decline in industrial output then in the in, in the in, in the very early 90s but uh, then very high growth rates and uh, Czech Republic Slovakia the Baltic states are now very prosperous and not that far away from closing the gap with Western Europe in fact they they already have uh, caught up with the, with the likes of Portugal and Greece, uh, the Czech Republic and parts of and, and the Baltic states are, I think, already economically ahead of of those. Uh, those those would be the success stories, and ideally, if Cuba could replicate something like that, that would be fantastic. But there are also the cautionary tales. There is, of course, the Russia example, uh, where you had a much more chaotic transition. Where, yes, they, they had privatization. They they had. Uh, the, the introduction of market prices, but where they got the institutional setup wrong and uh, created a, a very corrupt and uh, an inefficient system. And uh, in the case of Cuba, it could go either way. One, one can only hope that they would not become uh, a new Russia, but rather a, a new Czechoslovakia or a new Estonia. Do you think there's sort of scope for Western democracies then to, to help in any regard? And do you think they can or they should? Um, only in the form of advice, but the demand would have to come from there. You would need a post-socialist government that is interested in uh, the history of similar examples. And then, yes, I suppose you could have um, advisors, people who helped with uh, the transition in, in Eastern Europe. And so some of those people must must still be around and I suspect they would quite quickly orient themselves towards Florida because Cuba as a market economy would probably be very highly economically integrated with Florida 
um, not just because of the geographic proximity and because of the size of the market, but also because uh, Florida has a huge Spanish-speaking population, many of them, of course, being um, Cuban-born, uh, exiled Cubans, uh, Cuban expats, and uh, they, they could quite quickly, effectively become part of the, the economy of Florida. And that could become a quick way of sorting themselves out. But they, they still they would still have to get the institutional setup right because otherwise they would just be the the, uh, the poor neighbor of, of Florida. Well, talking about trying to reform socialist systems, time to move on to our next discussion about the NHS. Kristen's recent report on the Australian healthcare system, Wizard of Oz, asks what the UK can learn from Australia's healthcare system. But it's already causing a storm on social media after criticising our precious NHS. To start off with Christian, what do you see as the key features of the Australian healthcare system that differ from the UK? Okay, so it's a system where you have a public health insurance programme, Medicare, that pays for most medical bills and covers everybody. That's a universal program. But Medicare does not run any healthcare facilities of its own. It is just an insurance program. It reimburses medical costs, but it is not the Australian NHS because there is no such thing. Uh, you wouldn't compare the two. So it's in the main a public insurance system. It's maybe not even the best example of its kind. There are examples of that Closer to here, in France, they have a public insurance system. They have uh, a state-run health insurance program. But there, people can then choose the, the healthcare providers that they want. And they have a large private sector as well. And uh, a fairly pluralistic uh, healthcare sector overall. And in that regard, maybe that's even preferable to the Australian system, because in Australia, uh, as, as far as I understand it, if you are a Medicare patient, your choice of private hospitals would be quite restricted. Uh, if, if you want to go to a private hospital, you would normally have to, to be privately insured as well. Whereas in, in, uh, in other form types of uh, public insurance programs, you have everyone has access to both public and private hospitals, and you have this uh, competitive provider market, and that's maybe the, the most attractive feature. Of, uh, of a public insurance system. Public insurance systems also exist in, in Taiwan and South Korea. Uh, that, that is quite a common type. Uh, Australia falls mostly into that category. And what they have in addition to that is that half or just over half of the population also have private insurance. So there is Medicare, there is this public program that covers the whole population, but most people do not rely exclusively on Medicare. They also have private insurance on top of that. And one difference to, to Britain is that in Australia, if you have private insurance, you get a tax rebate because the Australian state recognizes that if you have private insurance, you are less likely to make use of the publicly funded system. And they recognize that through the tax and transfer system. They give you a discount for the the private health insurance premium. So mm. for most people, that would mean it goes down by about a quarter. That makes that more affordable. And in that way, you have this two-track 
system. Uh, so Australia introduces uh, the competitive element mostly in, in that way through the private system and to a lesser extent uh, of, of people being able to choose between competing providers also as Medicare patients. But you get um, a more decentralized, pluralistic, competitive system. It may not be ideal, therefore the summary of the paper isn't this is the best system in the world, let's have that. Uh, but it, it's certainly one way of organizing healthcare in a, in a more market-based way. I think as, as an Australian in the UK, a, a regular conversation we have amongst ourselves is just pure bewilderment at the fact that um, Brits think the NHS is the only possible healthcare system, the only possible healthcare model. When we know back in Australia, we, we often have uh, just as high quality, if not in many cases, as, as you demonstrated in your report, uh, Christian, a much higher quality healthcare system with actually a lot more choice. In fact, I think that's a key feature of the Australian system is that it emphasizes choice to a much greater extent whilst maintaining universality. So you, anyone uh, who is of need in Australia can get access to high quality healthcare. In fact, arguably a higher quality than the NHS, um, even if you have no income. But at the same time, if you have income, the incentives push you towards taking some responsibility for your healthcare. Uh, there's, there's tax incentives and there's rebates that, that make this reality. So as you've said, about half of Australians who have private healthcare and then they get access to public and private hospitals uh, and or better potentially better treatment in public hospitals, but, but paid for by the private system. So that as a result takes a lot of the burden off the public system um, and it means a lot, lot more kind of efficiency and competitiveness, which is you know awkward features. It's, it's, I think, as you've said, it's not perfect. And um, there's issues of spiraling class and there's questions about what you can and can't fund. And, um, uh, there's issues a lot of young people don't engage in private health insurance because they're not going to need it as much but you need to obviously for insurance to work you need some people to effectively not get much healthcare out of it and some people to get a lot of healthcare out of it but if if enough people leave private healthcare you know the, the, the market doesn't work that well so I, I think that's kind of uh, you know you can get into complexity of any healthcare system but I think what's really important about, about your paper Christian is that you start exploring um, some other options as, as you've done in previous work John, I'm wondering how, how you see this as someone who's, you know, grown up with, with one healthcare <laughs> system, uh, one, one choice, our precious NHS. Well, what, does that, what does that put you in terms of your thinking about looking at alternative systems? Did you have kind of any previous knowledge about this or is this just another world? No, it, I mean, it's, it's all another world for me. I mean, I've, I've grown up in the UK most of my life. And so the NHS has been my, my sole point of contact. So it's always quite weird for me to hear about people talking about the NHS and as compared to other systems. But it's my understanding that in the UK, the private healthcare sector is, is, is relatively emaciated. Um, it doesn't take up a lot of the market. And, and that's part of the problem uh, with our sort of with, with our poor healthcare outcomes. But I'd, I'd like to ask Christian, what kind of what policy would we need to change to sort of allow the private medical sector in the UK to flourish? Well, there, Australia uh, does offer an example, uh, this rebate system, some version of that. I, I can't see why that wouldn't work uh, here as well. Um, and I think historically that has existed even alongside the NHS for a while. Um, I wouldn't do it in the exact same way as, uh, as they do it in Australia, because there you have the problem that uh, you give people rebates for private insurance but you then you don't have a guarantee that they really will make less use of the public system it is possible to take the rebate uh, and then still use all the medicare funded care or the publicly funded health care and uh, use the private insurance only for for optional extras um, and if if, uh, if that happens then that rebate is uh, is mostly a middle-class subsidy for, for private healthcare of, of 
of better of people. So I wouldn't want to to do it in in that exact way. It would make more sense if um, if you could just opt out of various parts of publicly funded healthcare, whether that's uh, through Medicare in in Australia or NHS commissioning here. If you could just opt out of parts of that and take a more substantial rebate and have private insurance to, to cover that instead. But um, with the guarantee that once you've opted out, you are no longer entitled to the publicly funded part. Um, I've seen various people in uh, from Australian sources while, while uh, I was writing this paper, I've seen a various health economists in Australia are making that proposal for the Australian case. And they say, rather than just have private insurance on top of Medicare, why don't we allow people to opt out of Medicare entirely and then uh, you can't have anything that's funded by Medicare, you rely exclusively on uh, on private insurance, but then you get a more substantive rebate. And that yeah. would be a way of making sure that you don't get this duplication. Yeah, so because I, th I think it'd be pretty open to that model. I think in the particular Australian context, um, there's a lot of uh, public health infrastructure, let's say, at a state level that is only available in some areas. It's not necessary that there's private hospitals everywhere in the country. So I guess it would be a matter of, well, you could still use the public infrastructure, the, the public hospitals, but you have to pay for it from your private insurance rather than paying it from, from um, what's called Medicare, which is the, the kind of national insurance scheme. And there's also a question about certain treatments that might be unaffordable to be insured so certain cancer treatments for example so do you lose access to that if you opt out of it so i think there's that have to figure out a few of those complexities some other parts that i think potentially uk could learn from australia um is the existence of of co-payments or part subsidies of certain things so for example seeing a gp in australia it's partly subsidized by medicare um and you can go to some gps that are what they call bulk build where it's 100 percent paid for uh, by the government, or if you if you kind of want a more urgent appointment uh, or like a, a fancier GP, um, you can also co-pay. So you can you can pay some additional fee on top of the Medicare fee, and that just means there's a lot more G GP services available. They're a lot more responsive rather than I find GPs in the UK to be, even though they're individually private businesses, ironically, and they're all branded NHS, and they, they can't take an additional payment for you to to see you quicker or um, to hire more doctors or whatever else. Yeah, can I just clarify what, what I mean by opt out uh, on, on your point, Matt? Um, by that, I don't mean that you can't use the NHS anymore, because uh, that would be terrible if, if every private insurer had to have uh, their own hospitals and their own specialists and have their own uh, exclusive network. I, I, I wouldn't want to create lots of parallel systems with no overlap, because we, we do need economies of scale. And, uh, and integration between specialties. What I mean by that is, is something that uh, the payment would then, once you've opted out, the payment would have to come through your private insurer. It would no longer be uh, publicly funded. It, uh, but you could, it could still be at an NHS hospital, but paid for by a, a private insurer. So, so what happens to sort of end users of the NHS then? Because I think people's concerns are that Oh, we'll we'll privatize bits of the NHS, or we'll we'll start using uh, an insurance-based model. But but what does that mean for the average person as a sort of a point of care? Um, it shouldn't make a difference uh, from from an individual perspective. It's uh, at that point once you you use it, it should just mean that the payment is organized in a different way, comes through a, a different channel. But that isn't something that you directly observe at that moment. That is something that goes on behind the scenes. Um, you could have 
uh, oh, I, I described this uh, in, in my healthcare book a couple of years ago. You could have a system where, where everyone can choose whatever health insurer they, they want. And um, that would mean if you don't want to change anything, if you're happy with the way things are now, you could just stay where you are. You would still have your local NHS organization um, paying for your healthcare. What it would mean is you would convert those local NHS organizations uh, that currently pay for your healthcare locally, uh, allocate funding locally. You would convert them effectively into health insurers because in a sense, that's what they already are. In a sense, every system is insurance-based. Uh, it's just that we don't see a part of the paycheck that's labeled health insurance contribution. It's just general taxation. I, this this is for a lot of people listening to this conversation. I think you know all well and good to talk about NHS reform, and you've got these excellent ideas. But of course, you know every time you put this out publicly, you get people screeching, you want to privatize the NHS and we'll destroy our um, holy system. I think even potentially the pandemic has... Uh, and the rallying around Save Our NHS and the heroes and, and doctors and nurses. And I think no one should ever, of course, uh, question the, the hard work and dedication of, of many people throughout this pandemic. Um, but, but the sense is that uh, the system is excellent. All it needs is a bit more money. Doesn't even, it doesn't even need any structural reform. Uh, how, how do you push back against that, in a sense? How, how can you make a more positive case of reform? Or are you perhaps more in the leaning towards the, the Sam Bowman school sometimes where you, you say to yourself, well, free marketers should just give up on healthcare. It's clearly not something you're interested in doing since, since you continue to talk a lot about healthcare. But that does seem like some free marketers have given up on the idea of reform altogether. Yeah, I've had this uh, argument on an IEA podcast with Sam Bowman. Uh, I agree with him that it is a lost cause. I don't think that we will get either the Australian system or uh, the sort of system that I used to write about earlier, uh, Netherlands, Switzerland, uh, competitive social insurance systems. I don't think we will see any of that, but I also think we cannot opt out. Uh, healthcare, either way, is a big topic in in Britain or, well, any developed country op occupies a large uh, proportion of the economy. It is on a lot of people's minds. And uh, if you are, in the broadest sense, on the pro-market side of this argument, people will accuse you of being anti-NHS. And it will just not be credible if you say, I, I'm a believer in free markets. I think competition, choice are the best ways of organizing economic matters. But I refuse to talk about healthcare. Then uh, people will still use the, the NHS as a stick to beat you with. Uh, they, they will say, okay, but uh, clearly this would be absolutely horrible if we had this in, in healthcare. And um, if it doesn't work in healthcare, how, how can you be so sure that it works in, in other areas? And if you just refused to talk about healthcare, then there would be nothing you could respond to that. And uh, if uh, opponents of the market economy, some of them sometimes use the NHS as a counter example, um, and treating the NHS almost as a small scale socialism and implying that if, uh, if, if, if Britain became socialist, all sectors would be like the NHS and wouldn't that be wonderful. So you have to be able to respond to that somehow and you can't say, okay, I refuse to talk about it. Uh, you might try to opt out, but the, the topic will catch up with you. It will not allow you, people will not allow you to opt out of it completely.
So to sort of draw these uh, draw these topics together, talking about Cuba earlier, I was curious to ask you about why there's this prevailing kind of myth that, that the Cuban healthcare system is so fantastic, um, or if in fact there's some truth to it, and, and we could kind of integrate some uh, some learnings from the from the Cuban healthcare system. Yes, um, well, that's that's another one of those things. It's hard to uh, come across detailed information here. Um, yeah, the. The medicine shortages are real. I, I don't think it's uh, it's it can't be a fantastic experience for for everyday users, but they do have a very high level of, of life expectancy. Average life expectancy is, I think, seventy nine years, so not that far uh, from what, what it would be in Britain, and that's pretty much on the same level as a as a developed country. So. They must be getting something right. And also infant mortality, um, can't remember the figures, but about on a par with a developed country. So on those measures, they seem to be doing pretty well. That's true. I would just point out that they were already far ahead of the region before the revolution. And there were positive trends going on already in the decades before the revolution and that then just continued after the revolution. Uh, so it's not that uh, they they started from nothing and that uh, only the Communist Party of Cuba built this up from scratch, but rather they were a highly developed, uh, a relatively developed country before the revolution, including in terms of social indicators, and that continued. So yeah, some achievements that I would acknowledge exist and uh, no, no, point denying that, that 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 would be dishonest but as even those are are not unique it's it's not for a long time supporters of that uh, system said that's the best in latin america that's not true either it's up there with the best but there's nothing unique uh, about cuba you also get a very high life expectancy in chile for example in costa rica um, in, in, I think, Uruguay. So there are just uh, countries in that, uh, in, in Latin America and the Caribbean that have very high social indicators, human development index. And yeah, C Cuba is one of those, but by no means unique. And it was, uh, again, it was not something that started with the revolution. Well, moving on from a few different forms of socialism, trying to move on, uh, think a little bit about socialist attitudes. Kristen's recent IA publication, Left Turn Ahead, aims to shed light on attitudes of young people towards capitalism and socialism. Christian, you've done a new poll for this report. What have you found? That um, the, the cliche of the woke socialist millennial is broadly correct. There have been many uh, reports on this in the media over the past uh, five years or so about socialist attitudes among millennials there was uh, of course there was for example this uh, this famous title story cover story in the economist titled the rise of millennial socialism and something very similar in the new statesman all sorts of publications um, some of some critical the telegraph mostly sees, seeing it as a bad thing uh, the new statesman seeing it uh, unsurprisingly as a very good thing but there, there was just a consensus, you could say, across the media that, uh, so yes, socialism has made a comeback as a mainstream ideology, and it's mostly a generational phenomenon. It's not that the baby boomers have suddenly rekindled their 1960s radicalism, it's the millennials and now also 
the, the first cohorts of the Zuma generation. And my, and my report, my polling uh, just shows that that's broadly correct. So kind of interesting to unpack this a little bit, because I, I think there's, there's no doubt that there's a popular idea that the socialism is back, particularly around Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, although notably politically, neither of them were particularly successful. But I think you could probably make a fair argument that while they did better amongst younger cohorts, that you've got a, a concerning um, demographic turn ahead and that attitudes might not necessarily become more conservative. What I kind of find about your question is that whilst you found a lot of people agreeing with socialist kind of, I guess, motherhood statements, you also found them agreeing with a lot of capitalist motherhood statements as well. So you had over 60% agree that less tax um, because the government will not spend it wisely. Uh, you had over almost 6 million people agree that we need to build more housing and the cost will come down. Um, whilst at the same time all screwing with rent control. Uh, and then you also even on the question of businesses and profit, you found that profit business, uh, profit driven businesses create useful products, jobs and tax revenue are well over 60% spot for that notion. So it kind of makes me think that potentially when, when you had people responding to this poll, which notably you couldn't really compare attitudes across generations just because you focus in on Zoomers and millennials, but potentially a lot of them either, A, they're not understanding the, the contradictions and the ideas that they're supporting or B, um, they're, they're basically not as political as we might make them out to be. There's obviously, you know, the, the highly political millennials in Navarro media, but uh, more broadly, it doesn't seem like from at least your findings that it's necessarily as pessimistic a line about all millennials and, and all um, Zoomers purely on the basis that they seem to also agree with pro-capitalist comments. Yes, uh, that, that's uh, clearly true. And that, that shows that this attachment to socialism is quite shallow. And uh, in most cases, it's not that well thought through. If uh, on, the, on the, the socialist statements, yes, you get very high uh, percentages agreeing with those, usually 70 to 80% uh, agreeing with, uh, with anti-capitalist statements. And uh, this, this is true across the board. I think there's not a single one that has less than 70% of respondents agreeing with it. But um, as you said, you then sometimes also get uh, majorities agreeing with, with pro-capitalist statements. So there must be quite a bit of overlap. There must be, mathematically, there must be loads of people uh, who agree simultaneously with both, with two mutually exclusive positions. And that, yes, that does show. It's not well thought through. It's not that the Socialist Workers' Party has suddenly taken over the uh, two entire generations. Um, but it's still, whether it's a, a shallow commitment or a firm commitment at the moment, if, mo if people have to make a choice, uh, a, a choice between a pro-capitalist and an anti-capitalist statement, most millennials, most Zoomers would choose the anti-capitalist one. Would you say that, that socialism is the sort of default state, even if it is very shallow, uh, and by that logic, do you think it's possible that it could sort of be reversed or undone as easily as it has been done? On the first point, yes. It's, uh, it's, it's clearly a de default position that, that many uh, embrace because it's what they're familiar with. They hear this all the time. Um, you would hear anti-capitalist arguments they've, uh, all the time. They're, they're all around us and uh, we're just familiar with them and therefore it sounds intuitively plausible, but then when you're presented uh, with, with a pro-capitalist statement, and I think that's what's, what's going on in the poll, that many um, see the pro-capitalist statement, uh, even if they vaguely realize that they've just said something 
uh, to the contrary, that they've just embraced the, the opposite statement, uh, then see the, the pro-capitalist statement and think, hmm, when you put it like that, that also sounds plausible. And uh, that's just sometimes the case. If you don't know much about a subject area, you hear two conflicting statements and you think, well, both of them can sound, sort of sound plausible. Interesting enough, when you ask people whether or not they generally describe their views as socialist or capitalist or a mixture, uh, or neither, you found kind of a majority would say uh, a mixture, slightly more would say socialist than capitalist, though kind of both about 20% a capitalist, twenty percent are socialists, and then sixty percent are, are a mixture, and a little bit final remaining bit is neither. I mean, that kind of says to me that the, the socialism is—it's not necessarily as bad even as you're making it out to be. Which is to say, um, there doesn't seem to even be that very strong socialist group. Maybe it's roaring that you know one in five millennials and Zoomers um, say that they're socialists, and that you don't have a strong majority for capitalism. But that doesn't scream to me all lost. I think though that the next challenge is, um, and, and admittedly your uh, poll wasn't set up necessarily to achieve this goal, which is to try to figure out what kind of messages people associate with capitalism and socialism and what's the best way to most effectively talk about those ideas to persuade people um, to, to come across to the, to the capitalist uh, side of this, or perhaps even uh, capitalism is the wrong word here because we shouldn't really be talking about capitalism. We're just talking about <laughs> innovatism or enterprise or, you know, of course, Marx came up with the word capitalism famously as a, as a critique and saying the whole system is about capital and the flow of capital when I think as free marketeers, that's not what we would see essential to the system at all. So perhaps a, a terminology failure to some extent um, there as well. And I'm, I'm kind of interested how you, you see that next step in terms of, is it possible or should we basically give up? And, uh, you know, I think you've said before, Christian, we're on our way to, to North Korea or maybe halfway <laughs> towards North Korea. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I guess that goes back to, to John's question is if it's superficial, does that mean it's easy to reverse? Uh, I don't think it is. That's uh, one of the problems. You, you can sometimes have a, a fairly shallow commitment to something, but uh, that doesn't mean that you easily give it up. It, they could uh, still stick to it. And uh, I mean, there are, I remember 20 years ago, I, I already heard free marketers say, oh, well, there are, there's this polling evidence that shows that uh, a lot of people are actually not that anti markets it's just that they see us as uncaring we just need to show them that we're not bad people and then this will all evaporate and uh, people will uh, embrace Friedman and Hayek and somehow that hasn't happened yes it could be that the anti-capitalism is quite shallow but that doesn't mean that it's easy to reverse or maybe a better example um, for this would be in a lot of Western countries I've heard this many times that parties of the center-right uh, are pointing out that a lot of first-generation immigrant communities are small-c conservatives uh, and should therefore naturally vote for them. Uh, US Republicans often say this, uh, British conservatives, uh, probably same similar in Australia, and say the, the only problem is they see us as hostile to them, therefore they don't vote for us. If we can change that perception, then uh, all the minorities, the minority vote will be ours. But somehow it doesn't happen. It, it, it sounds easy to, if, if you put it like that, you just need to change that perception and then it will, you, will, you will totally turn this around. But if it were so easy, why has no one done it? And I'd say this is a similar story here for, for capitalism. Well, is that not a question of sort of playing to your voting base? I don't, I mean, I, I don't think the Tories see it, for example, in their current interest 
uh, to really do anything about this problem because young people don't vote for them anyway. And so long as they can sort of cobble together enough of a voting block, you know, among among boomers and I would suppose like later millennials, then then why should they bother? Um, yes, okay. Uh, for for now, for for them, that um, that is a strategy that they pander to the to the boomer vote. Uh, it's a bit short-sighted. Uh, it's always but, short-sighted, really. But, well, I mean, uh, at, at some point, uh, millennials and Zoomers will be the vast majority of the electorate. And uh, what the polling also shows is that uh, socialist ideas no longer lose their appeal as people get older. Uh, so you can't um, rely on on the idea that once the first millennials turn 50, or once the first millennials turn 60, that by then they will have abandoned their socialist ideas. Uh, so far, I mean, there are 40-year-old millennials already, and in that age group, there is still as much approval for socialist ideas as among 18-year-olds. So it's not simply a, a late teen, early 20s phase. It's uh, something that's among people in early middle age, quite embedded, and I see no reason why this uh, should go. But uh, either way, I mean, I'm not interested in the the electoral prospects of the conservative party. That I don't care about that at, at all. I, I just mentioned that as an example of um, where where you have an attachment to an idea. It seems quite shallow, and therefore it should be easy to reverse it, but somehow it never happens. And, and it's, this is one of those examples. Do, do you think that we're sort of going to end up sleepwalking inevitably into a sort of a, a Corbynista style government in this country then? There's nothing inevitable about this. That's why uh, I, I wouldn't want to make specific predictions because it could always be, since it is such a a shallow commitment, it could always be overridden by other things. It could be that there is this vague sympathy for socialism, but that it will just not be strong enough to to swing real-world outcomes, that some other factor is going to override that, and that could always be the case. I compared, in the paper, I, I compared to the Brexit issue, where it was also, until 2016, it was there was a lot of latent Euroscepticism, but for most people it was just never a big deal. So it could well be, I'm sure there is a parallel universe somewhere, where there, where that referendum just didn't happen, and where the, the topic sort of died down on its own. People lost interest in the EU, Britain is an EU member, nobody cares very much about it. So it could have stayed that way. It's just uh, always a permanently unstable situation when you have a lot of latent hostility to some political arrangement, whether that's EU membership in, in that case, or or whether that's capitalism, when you have lots of latent resentment. Um, yeah, it could be that it never matters. It could be that it always stays latent, never comes fully comes out. But as we've seen in the case of Brexit, you can't rely on that. Sometimes it does. Yeah, I think there's there's always, when you're thinking about why people vote for political parties, it, it's quite multifaceted. I suspect a lot of young people voting Labour, not necessarily because they strongly identified with the, the idea that he's a socialist, but perhaps more for, for cultural reasons, that they see him as a progressive, someone who was more towards the Remain side, even if that wasn't necessarily the case. So the Labour Party was more towards the Remain side and they didn't really want Brexit. So even though Corbyn, uh, let's say did relatively well in 2017 and, and did okay in, in uh, 2019, didn't necessarily win in either case, A, and B, that there's always other things going on other than their economic opinions. There's a lot in the in politics. There's a lot of different reasons why people vote for different things. I mean, I, I think more specifically on the 
point about uh, capitalism and, and attitudes, I think the challenge is for a lot of young people is to um, link what they do in their own lives uh, to the, 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 the free market system. Because if you say, even to a lot of people have kind of weak socialist views, um, they kind of presume they're still going to have an iPhone, they're still going to have Deliveroo, their lives don't really change very much, the world will just be that little bit nicer, maybe they'll get a higher income or something like that if you move to a social system. But I think it's about explaining that the outgrowth, you know, a lot of young people want to start businesses, they want to be entrepreneurs, uh, how can we link that to the idea of the market system and supporting so the market system? You want to make uh, capitalism high status and trendy then? I mean, capitalism <laughs> Good luck uh, with that. might not become exactly high status and trendy, but I think there's, there's ways to talk about those things to kind of change the way people think about them and, and to be less kind of revolutionary pushing towards a socialist system if, if they understand that the benefits of the, the system which uh, currently exists. And now that's a kind of very conservative thing to say um, in, the, in the true sense of conservative, the status quo is in. But at the same time, if, if you can explain to them that, that socialism is not just like a slightly nicer version of the world they live in, but actually giving up quite a lot and not reward, removing the you know, rewards for effort and, and the meritocracy in which a lot of young people want to try to thrive in and work hard to do well in and losing the benefits of you know, Netflix and Amazon and all these, these great services that people depend on day to day, rather than seeing socialism as like slightly better healthcare or something. Yeah, but that's the problem uh, at, the, at the moment. Yeah, historically, it is, of course, true that if you compare capitalist to socialist economies and uh, so far as they are comparable, it's, it's always true that living standards are vastly higher in the capitalist uh, economy. But the big, the big part of the popularity of socialism is that nobody judges socialism by its historic record. Um, we also had examples uh, when we asked for associations with socialism. Um, the Venezuela example in particular, and virtually nobody brings that up. Absolutely nobody associates uh, socialism with Venezuela. Socialists have very successfully detached themselves from that. And uh, therefore, that is not cutting through. Uh, and and that's, that's what makes it hard for us to, to shift anything in, in this argument, that capitalism, any capitalist economy will be judged by its uh, its real world shortcomings which of course always exist uh, whereas um, when when people don't do that for for socialism then you don't have a fair comparison you're comparing a, an, an incomplete imperfect system that actually exists to a theoretical ideal and uh, then of course the, the the theoretical abstract ideal always wins and uh, just making that connection, explaining that uh, it, it, it happened for a reason, that all the, the historic examples of socialist economies, that they were all ended up in, in misery and, uh, and, and shortages and, and drabness and, and, and grayness. Uh, that, that is not a coincidence, that is not just a bad application of people misunderstanding Marx. There are systematic reasons why that happened, but that's just hard to make, that argument. That's just hard to explain. Well, on a brilliant explanation of those arguments, I just wanted to finish up by thanking you very much for listening to this week's episode of the Pin Factory podcast. You've been listening to myself, uh, Matthew Lesh, I'm the head of research at the ASI, as well as our head of government, John McDonald, and Dr. Kristen Niemitz from the Institute of Economic Affairs. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe, rate us highly, and please do tune in next week for another week of banter analysis. Thank you.